As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. It's another of our topical editions this week. Uh, we've got plenty to discuss. Lots has been in the news. As ever, we are going to divide it into three distinct sections that we're going to talk about. And we're delighted to be joined this week by CapEx's deputy editor, Alice Denby. Hello, Alice. Hello. And the from the Centre for Policy Studies, our parent organisation, our head of tech and innovation, Matthew Feeney. Matthew, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. And I realise I forgot to introduce myself, but I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. So, what are we going to talk about today? First up, this week has been the census, the 2021 census, which happens every decade. And there's some really interesting findings on the kind of demography and religiosity of modern Britain uh, and what it means for the country and public policy. So that'll be our first section. Then we will be moving on to one of Matthew's areas of great expertise, which is the online safety bill, or as I like to call it, the dreaded online safety bill, one of my least favourite bits of legislation. Um, and then finally, we'll be talking about the hoo-ha at the Wellcome Trust, which is a kind of scientific uh, museum, I guess, um, which has shuttered its own exhibition this week for being racist, sexist and ableist. And Alice is going to talk a bit about that. Um, she has actually already been on the TV this week talking about it to great acclaim on Politics Live. So I'm sure we'll have a very lively discussion about that and on museums and kind of culture more generally. But to kick off, we're going to start with the census. Uh, I mean, it was a really kind of quite fascinating set of uh, set of findings here. I think the main one that kind of made the headlines was that Britain is no longer a majority Christian country. I mean, guys, how first, how surprised are you by that? And how significant do you think it is? Not surprised. I think uh, those who have been living here a while know that uh, it's rare to meet someone who will call themselves a regular churchgoer. Uh, people, I think, have uh, a natural, I suppose, uh, patriotic attachment to the Church of England. It provides a lot of cultural reassurance to people and people like the medieval churches in the villages. It, you know, Christianity is clearly 
an integral part of this country's DNA. But as, at least when it comes to theological commitments, it seems like it's uh, on the decline and people are more comfortable to say that they are either not religious or have joined a, another religion altogether. I suppose my thought at looking at the headline was uh, maybe it's just uh, more socially acceptable now just to call yourself agnostic. Uh, and yeah. that uh, lots of people in the past said, well, I'm Church of England. But what they meant was we go at Easter and Christmas and we like the hymns. Uh, but so for that reason, I'll say Church of England. But now they just say agnostic. I saw something that said that even in the 1940s, something like three quarters of Brits said they didn't believe in an afterlife. So, which kind yeah. of speaks to what you're saying, where people could sort of say that on the tin that they're Christians, but they don't actually necessarily adhere to the the belief system or, or haven't. I mean, Alice, what do you think about this? Is it, it strikes me, if anything, as being quite high. I know almost no one who goes to church. Maybe that's because I'm an awful metropolitan London type, but actual regular churchgoers, I would say, is much lower than 45, 46% of the population. Yeah, I feel like perhaps as a country, we've become a bit like Christmas, a sort of secular festival with Christian roots. Um, I'm not surprised by this. I, personally, I, I was raised as a Catholic. I was taken to church as a child and have totally lost interest in it. Right. And, um, I, and I don't intend to raise my own daughter as any kind of religion. And I expect that's a fairly common... Journey. I just feel like, from my personal perspective, I didn't feel like the church had much to offer me. And things like the Catholic Church's stance on on gay marriage and scandals over um, child abuse and things hasn't helped. It just doesn't feel to me like something that's relevant in my life. And I expect that that's a reasonably common experience for Christians in Britain. Yeah, it's very interesting um, coming back to the UK. Um, uh, yeah muddled accent and everything. But you know, I spent the last 10 years in the States where, of course, religion is much more of a politically salient uh, uh, feature, of uh, feature of politics there. Uh, and that it's always struck me as interesting that the United States has this very strict separation of church and state. And here we have, um, constitutionally, right, the, the head of state is the head of the church. Um, and yet at the same time, no one is really particularly um, interested in attending. I suppose... Um, some people will look at those figures and worry because there are people who think that uh, what does Englishness mean with such a decline of such an English institution? What is this doing to national character? Uh, especially, I think, in, in the wake of the, the death of the Queen, the, the, where, where the, the country is sort of ripe now right, for, for discussions about national identity. And, and I think this will just uh, continue to do that. Uh, I suppose I'm I'm sort of on an opposite journey of um, valency because I, I'm not particularly religious, but I, I was one of those kind of insufferable Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris <laughs> atheists in, in high school. And uh, only in my 30s have I thought like, you know what, it's, it's not. <laughs> and, and so I will, you know, I live in London and will sometimes on a Sunday go to, but I am, when I do attend, two decades younger than almost everyone else. Yeah, yeah. It is, yeah, it's remarkable. I um, I was brought up as um, in the Quakers, which is a very small religion. Mm. There's only about 20,000 in the entire country. And I have exactly, exactly the same experience as you. I became very, quite briefly, thankfully, an insufferable Dawkins-type atheist. But then I started kind of occasionally going back to meetings. 
And also, if you aren't really a big believer, then Quakers are ideal because they're one of the least kind of didactic religions going. You can kind of just do whatever you want. But I found it actually quite a kind of soothing experience, kind of away from the, the buzz of the of the city and, and so on. Um, another thing that's interesting from these findings is that a belief in a kind of spirituality or higher power is actually still there among a lot of people. It's not that they necessarily seek it out in organised religion in the same in the same way. But I mean, Matthew, you mentioned there. You talked about how Englishness as an identity seems to be declining. And this is one of the other kind of striking findings on the surface of this census is that the number of people who say they identify primarily as English has absolutely plummeted. But the reason it's plummeted is in large part because they changed the order of the answers in the census. So in 2011... English was one of the first options and they've changed it around so that now British is one of the first options and way more people um, have put British. So it's quite an interesting example of how just kind of laziness and the way we structure things can come out with some sort of surprising um, findings. I mean, even so, does it matter that much whether you describe yourself as English or British or both? I mean, Alice, what do you think? You, you've you talked about this. Again, I mentioned you were on Politics Live earlier. You talked about Scotland and the Union and how we are a kind of family of nations. Do you think that it matters whether you perceive yourself primarily as British or not? Uh, I certainly think it matters a lot to uh, people in Scotland um, who incidentally couldn't get their own census together. Um, I, I certainly... Um, feel strongly about the union I, because uh, my own family, my husband is Scottish, my daughter is half Scottish. I feel strongly that we are a family of nations with ties of blood. Almost every family in this country will have a mixture of Scottish, English, Irish and Welsh blood. I think how you describe yourself on a form matters much less than how you feel and and who you are. Um but but yes, I expect in, in, in the Scottish census, if they were ever able to do it, they would certainly put Scottish at the top to make yeah. sure that everybody said that. But it does feel to me, though, whether you think this is good or bad or not, that it's sort of seen as a bit cringe to be proudly English mm. in a way that it isn't if you're from Scotland or Wales. Maybe that's just because we're so... England is so by far the biggest country in the Union. I mean, do yeah. you sense that? No, I, I do. And, and I've always thought it's rather interesting that uh, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland doesn't have an agreed upon demonym, right? That if you're from France, you're French. If you're from Italy, mm. you're Italian. If you're from the United Kingdom of Great Britain, Northern Ireland, you're a, a, a Briton. Some people have started saying, I've noticed, but yeah. it seems like most people are happy to say, well, I'm British, but I'm, I'm English as well. Or I'm, I'm a Scot who lives in the UK, right? That, that sort of thing. Um, it's been... Well, it's, it's complicated for me. You know, my mother is English. My father's a New Zealander. I was born in Scotland. Um, the name, as the name Feeney implies, I have a lot of Irish ancestry. Uh, and you are I, like the Mr. Anglophone world. <laughs> there you go, like, yeah, you right. are the Anglophone world personified. Right. Like... <laughs> yeah, and, and when I look at the, 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 the UK census, it's, I've never known whether I count as white Irish or white British, given the, the background there. But then to your point, I don't really care in the sense that I, I know that... Um, I feel um, an attachment to, to England, where I live, where um, I, I spent a lot of my childhood. Um, I'm very you know, proud of um, the Irish part of my, my ancestry. Um, I spent a lot of time in Scotland, so I'm happy to... And I do feel, to Faust's point, this, um, this nation of nations is um, historically pretty unique. And 
uh, the fact that uh, these discussions about nationhood uh, and identity are not as clear cut as they are in other countries, uh, I know causes some people worry, but I think it's it's a feature of of our unique history that we should be proud of. Yeah, and I, I'm sort of with you. I mean, perhaps again, this is being a kind of a Londoner and terribly out of touch. But when I see this data about demographic change, I just think, who cares? You know, it's it's everybody's lived experience, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That that you know you, you have friends from everywhere. Your you, your own heritage is mixed and. I just think, I think yeah, yeah, why does it matter? I think it's particularly true of Britain as a country. I mean, it's true of lots of countries, but we are historically mixity, uh, for want of a better word, is the kind of story of Britain. There's no such thing as a kind of pure Brit, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've been invaded several times. Our language is insanely rich and dense, and we have way more words than most other languages because of all those different mm -hmm. sources so i suppose does this matter politically um if if it's people like nigel farage are seeking to weaponize this information i know it's, yeah. it's easy for yeah. us to say that it doesn't matter to us but is there a big a cohort of people out there to whom it matters a lot yeah. who yeah. so we should probably talk about what we're what we mean with the farage thing is that so the latest census came back saying that various cities had whatever percentage it was of kind of non-white mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. farage did this tweet saying that um, London, Birmingham, Manchester are all now minority white cities. And this is just completely, well, it's not completely untrue. It's true of Birmingham, but it's not true of London or Manchester. I mean, notwithstanding whether or not you think that's a bad thing or not anyway, it's just complete, it, you know, it's misinformation. It's this kind of power light, sort of great replacement type politics of this fear that, you know, you're going to be outnumbered in your own land. But the, I mean, the census data shows that Britain is, still overwhelmingly white British for the most part. Yes, it is. And and I thought um, for, for listeners who haven't seen it yet, they should check out uh, Farage's tweet where he was filming himself um, bemoaning these findings. Uh, and uh, what one thing he said was rather bizarre was that he linked the decline of Christianity to immigration. But you look at the numbers and you think that this is, it's not that, you know, we're being yeah. swamped by Muslims. It's that people who are, you know, have... Uh, who have lived here a long time are abandoning Christianity, mm -hmm. and that's yeah. what's happening. Um, and I, I think also a, a reflection of, of the, to the political angle is you know Sajid Javid you know jumps in and says, so what? Like what is um, what's the issue there? And yeah, you know, I I live in South London, and I get on the bus to to work here in uh, Westminster, uh, and and rarely a day goes by that I don't hear a foreign language right on on the bus or on the street, uh, and just doesn't bother me or particularly, you know, I register it because I don't speak the languages. Uh, but I think politically, those who look at the country need to be aware that for some people that is, you know, disconcerting and people do find um, demographic changes unsettling. Yeah. Uh, what, what to do about that is something um, not in my policy area, let's put it that way. But, but your, your but example is a good one because it, it depends so much on kind of where you live and what yeah. the impact. If you live in London, basically the story of London for decades has been one of high immigration. But if you live in, say, Lincolnshire, in somewhere where in the last 20 years there's been a huge surge in immigration, that would seem quite abrupt, I think. Yeah, and I think to... we've also got to bear in mind that London is extremely prosperous where other parts of the country, I and mean, we know all about this, we you know about what Brexit and levelling up, and uh, but, but I think the point is that race and immigration can get weaponised as an issue when there are other problems um, in an area. So, uh, you know, lack of opportunity and prosperity and, and all the things that the levelling up agenda is supposed to be addressing. And I suppose that's that's the risk. The demographic change itself is not the risk. The risk is 
um, is is if if it gets turned into an issue as a kind of distraction from other problems. Mm-hmm. I think there's yeah. I think um, we had this is relevant to the recent net migration stats, which were over uh, over five hundred thousand for the year twenty one to twenty two, which is way above what it's been before, even if you include kind of extra people from Ukraine and, and Hong Kong, it's still way, way, way above. Um, and there is this kind of raging argument now about whether it is just being weaponized and used as an excuse or whether actually the economic model we've had for the last 10, 15 years is unsustainable. You can't just keep relying on uh, people coming over and working very cheaply. Um, but, but I think the overwhelming, the question that overrides it all, whichever side of that debate you're on, is that Politicians have promised one thing and completely not delivered it. So if you voted for Brexit in 2016 under the take-back control, you probably didn't think it would mean a massive increase in immigration. Personally, I'm kind of ambivalent about that. I think it has pros and cons, like most things. Immigration is not axiomatically good or bad. It depends how it's managed. But at the moment, the feeling is it's not being managed at all. And that feeling is exacerbated by when we see people coming on boats completely illegally and then landing on you know, beaches in the south of England. Yeah, I suppose um, I should I should show my hand and say I'm I'm very pro increased yeah immigration liberalisation of borders. I think it should be easier to move um, across international borders, and I'm not just saying that because my my wife uh, and I dealt with um, Home Office, uh, oh, God. Yes. but I I think that um, yeah there is clearly um, I think a uh, a necessity when you look at the, the British economy to allow for high skilled, um, not just high school, but especially if you want to be competitive in um, the, the 21st century economy that you know, we want to make it, I think, as, as easy as possible for British firms to hire the best talent they can find wherever that is in the world. Uh, and I, I think that that would only help. Uh, the, the fact that people feel uh, like there is no control over it, I, I think is, is a, a feature of media consumption more than actual mm. facts on the ground, I think. Uh, I, I compared to a lot of other countries, I think the UK has <laughs> um, uh, relatively strict control over its borders. Yeah, I, no, no, yeah. I, I know the, the in the last few months, news of, of, of channel crossings have, have dominated. Yeah, but the absolute country. numbers are not that high, but it's the sense of people kind of taking the piss, frankly. And of course, yeah. Overriding yeah. a system. Well, the, the actual numbers are very high. It was 500,000 last no, year. No, no, it's in the channel crossing number. Yeah, I mean, I feel That's like maybe we're falling into our own trap by turning, talking about the census into a conversation about immigration, like... We're, we're, we're weaponizing it ourselves. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I take a very kind of um, so what approach to um, the, the a lot of the figures people are getting upset about because I think you know uh, it's very difficult to take um, complaints about the decline of Christianity seriously from people who you don't see in church every, mm, every Sunday, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah. very uh, and people who are worried about the immigration figures. I think. You, know, you you have to make sure that that conversation isn't necessarily grounded in the racial identity of the of British citizens no. <laughs> saying what they are, right? Because that that gets you into pretty dangerous waters. And I'm not, you know, despite my position, I don't think that you are a, a bigot or a xenophobe to raise questions about how many people are coming to the country and what what that means, right? But yeah, but the context in which these debates happen, I think, are important. Yeah, I think you're right. There are a lot of kind of myths and red herrings out there to do with what you know, whether immigrants claim more benefits or whether they contribute to lower wages and all this kind of thing. 
having done a kind of brief article on it last week, the main thing that sort of struck me was how contested a lot of the kind of evidence and academic work on that is. So it's really kind of, it's one of those debates where you can kind of retrofit stats and data to whatever your existing viewpoint is. Anyway, we, we could talk about this all day. And as I said, we've kind of gone off topic because we started talking about the census and now we've gone on to the, uh, probably the thorniest issue in British politics. Let's get on to something on which I think all three of us are in firm agreement which is the online safety bill. Now, Matthew, I'm going to let you kind of lead off here because you know a lot more about it um, than I do. But this is a kind of monstrous piece of legislation, 200 plus pages. But this week, the government have slightly kind of rode back on, on elements of it. Right. Uh, so the online safety bill is, as you describe, a, a massive piece of legislation that the government is very keen to pass. It's in the final stages of the Commons at the moment uh, and uh, will shortly be of the Lords. The... Bill aims to tackle a wide variety of concerns, uh, namely the spread of uh, harassing and harmful content online, the spread of political misinformation, uh, but but it also is dealing with um, issues dealing with with fraudulent advertising, uh, access to pornographic sites, all of these sorts of things, uh, and it has been widely criticised by a range of a, a range of groups on um, free speech and privacy grounds. Uh, and earlier this year, I wrote a paper for CPS where I outlined the, these concerns for those listening. But what's like the title of that paper? <laughs> Just uh... it is a, a census charter question mark, uh, right. which is a, a question a... mark in brackets, I think. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and amongst the most controversial of the provisions was what came to be called the, the legal but harmful content provision. Uh, it's a phrase that doesn't actually appear in the bill, but the uh, original or uh, the, the most up-to-date version of the bill uh, would impose obligations on online firms to tackle content that is legal but harmful, as the name implies. Uh, this is, uh, the plan now is uh, for that just to be scrapped. Uh, and uh, I, I think that has been, is, is a good step, right, because uh, there were widespread concerns about what the, the provision does. And I, I should note the provision didn't just say, hey, YouTube, Facebook, here's a list of bad content, you've got to get rid of it. What it said was, if you operate, you need to tell us, the government, um, how you are going to handle this. And basically gave um, a, a list of options. Um, and the worry was that in order to comply with this, that firms would just over-moderate and they would say, look, anything that looks like this harmful content, just take it down. Would they do that? Would they be liable to do that, especially those bigger firms, by simply using, say, an algorithm that picks up on certain words? Yes, yeah. They, they Rather than an actual person looking at yes, it. Yes, yes, and you can do that. Uh, the, the problem is, as uh, I always try to stress, having written about this bill, but also spent years in, in Washington doing other similar debates, is that uh, context is just as important often as content. Right? Yeah. And so uh, you can identify bad content, but the context often matters. So uh, for example, it, there, there isn't a policy, uh, I, I don't think of a major social media site that says all video of bullying is taken down. You know, a company like Facebook might say, well, if the bully uploads the video and is making fun of the victim on the post, then we do take it down. But if a 
anti-bullying charity uploads it to highlight the kind of harm they're trying to address, then we keep it up. Uh, and then there are other examples of, you know, of new children and other things. Um, and, and this is exactly the kind of nuance that I think um, the, the original bill really did miss. I think for me, my way of kind of understanding this bill, because it's so huge and complicated, is to kind of zoom out and think about where it started. So the, the in, initial impetus for this was the, the horrible suicide of a 14-year-old girl called Molly Russell, who had been viewing a lot of self-harm content. Um, and I think one of the one of the problems was that these algorithms kept pushing more and more of this stuff at her. But but her father, Ian, was on today the other day and he was describing some of the content that she was looking at. And it was kind of drawings of sad girls with kind of slogans next to them. I mean, it, it, it's clearly upsetting content, but there's no way in which that could be illegal. And my, my question is, how, how can you kind of... As you said, as you're saying, it's the context rather than the content that is that matters. I think. No, I, um, I yeah. And 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 how you, how you could sort of scour the entire internet for something like that that might be harmful to one person who's feeling that way. I mean, but I, but I suppose the important thing to talk about is um, the. I mean, what the government's been trying to talk about is is kind of pivoting back to the original purpose of the bill, which is to protect children. Mm. Michelle Donnellan on all her media rounds has been very keen to sort of. Um, talk about those aspects of the bill. I mean, is there anything in this bill that, that we like that we think will protect children or do we think it's all just bad? <laughs> Good question. Uh, but I, I do think that uh, the government has bitten off more than it can chew at this point. And yeah, it's 230 really, pages long, isn't it? It's, Something it's like 230 that. pages yes. and there is a child protection section, there is a advertising section, there is, I mean, the, the, it's really you know, a bunch of bills in one. Um, it's kind of like a US one where everyone bums in there. Yeah, not, not a model to be copied, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I do think that, um, I mean, speaking of the US, what's been astonishing after spending 10 years in Washington looking at this is um, that this bill in the United States would just be unconstitutional on its face. Uh, that, but in, in this country, there is no uh, First Amendment. So the government is free to say this kind of speech is illegal now. Mm. Um, yeah. Congress in America can't do that. But the, um, yeah. and, and so to, to your point, you know, can the government say drawings of sad children are now illegal? I, constitutionally, yes, uh, it can. Uh, and this is one of the worries uh, that, that people have constantly had about the bill, which is that it left uh, far too much power to the Secretary of State and unelected regulators to look at the Internet and decide, well, if you don't take this down, then you're going to be on the receiving end of a hefty fine or investigation. And and. Yeah, that 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 is um, very uh, worrying for a whole host of reasons. It, it just strikes me as a bit of a fool's errand as well, given the kind of scale and nature of the internet, that you are basically going to be playing this kind of almost retroactive game of whack-a-mole over the entire world and various websites that would, will do things to stop themselves being um, the subject of these kinds of regulations. And, you know, the dark web and all sorts of things, not to mention you know, um, just kind of social media that's happening instantaneously. I mean, how are you going to stop someone who's streaming live from um, disseminating content that falls foul of this? I mean, it strikes me as it's much, it would be much more efficient to invest your time and energy on helping younger people deal with mm -hmm. different kinds of content than trying to stop the actual content itself from existing. Yeah, well, well two things on that. One is... Um... Well, three, because I'm going to be selfish. But so the first is, I think oftentimes people underestimate the scale of the content we're talking about here. 
Okay. Right. Uh, for example, there's about 500 hours of content uploaded to YouTube every minute. Okay. There are billions of pieces of content that are uploaded to these big tech, you know, prominent sites um, every day. And and the idea that you know that uh, human beings are going to be involved in the most difficult cases all the time is just frankly just naive. Um, that said, I will say that the technology is oftentimes very impressive, even among companies that are very uh, criticized. Uh, there was a, um, a, a tragic shooting, I think it was in New York State, uh, where um, you know, a young man showed up to a, a shopping center and started shooting people. And he was streaming it on, uh, I believe it was Twitch, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, but either way, it was live streamed. And even then it was taken down within, I think, 180 seconds or something like that. It was actually comparatively quite quick. Uh, after the shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand, uh, YouTube, I think, took the approach, speaking of algorithms, to say, this is so bad, we're just going to throw artificial intelligence at this, and anything that looks like this is just coming down, and we'll embrace the false positives. But that is, um, for content that is making international headlines, you can understand why leadership at YouTube did get involved and said, look, we're telling the content moderation team, attack this. Um, it's just not really an option uh, for every piece of content, and inevitably there will be false positives where um, legitimate or, or th there'll be mistakes. So legitimate content will be taken down and stuff that should have been taken down stays up. That's just always going to happen. Um, and I would, I would just stress that I, I don't think the fact that that happens should motivate this kind of legislation that is going to change um, the face of the internet um, in ways I think a lot of people don't appreciate. I think one thing I question as a parent, you know, obviously we all worry about the sort of content that children might be looking at online. And, and clearly we didn't grow up with this technology. So obviously there's, you know, clear worries there. But I also, you know, I'm always reminded that every generation thinks that that there are moral threats to the next one that, that look ridiculous in hindsight. You know, in the 50s, it was, you know, Elvis, the pelvis was an incredibly credible moral threat. And part of me does think we're going to look a bit silly in 20 years time when kids grow up having had mobile phones since they were 11 or everything. I'm fine. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is definitely a... Um... There's an interesting uh, Twitter account called the Pessimist Archive that uh, will will post um, newspaper clippings from ages ago. You know, people thought you know, thought that the telephone was going to ruin romance because people don't know how to write love letters anymore. And uh, I mean, the car, the telephone, the computer, mm. all of these new innovations they change society. And people yeah. who are um, of a particular age who uh, will always be upset by it. And and I, I I feel I feel hesitant to delve into the the specifics of. Um, how how parents should behave just because I don't have children myself. But I think it's interesting that... Uh, uh, allow me. No. <laughs> but, but I do think that it's interesting. This this comes from the Conservative Party and there hasn't been much of a discussion of, well, do 11-year-olds need smartphones? Mm. Uh, and do 12-year-olds need smartphones? Uh, do children... Should children just have free reign on, on the internet? And to be fair to a lot of the companies who often criticize, there are parental control um, you know, settings in, in a lot of these um, these devices. But ultimately, I think, you know, you'd think the Conservative Party would embrace maybe the Conservative notion of the family being the, 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 the brick of um, society and that this sort of discussion should happen amongst families. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just briefly, because um, we're going to move on to our final topic. Um, but briefly, 
Another kind of unconservative aspect of this bill is that it's quite anti-competitive. It's striking that you've spoken a lot about bigger tech firms, but one of the things, and we've had pieces on CapEx about this, is that every time you impose reams of new regulation, you're basically shutting out smaller startup kind of companies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or ensuring that they just don't start in the first place. Like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, this this bill comes with really hefty fines associated with it. And um, not only that, uh, but there, there are certain compliance costs, right? And uh, look, Google and Facebook are going to be fine. Okay, they, they have more lawyers and engineers than God. They can throw, you know, they'll be, compliance will be an issue there. But uh, it is, I think, going to be a problem for startups and competitors because the, this bill is just added cost. The, the other thing to keep in mind is just because a website is prominent doesn't mean that it's wealthy. We oftentimes think about social media firms here, but, but the, the bill doesn't say social media sites, right? It, it's talking about websites um, and platforms that do all kinds of things. Uh, Wikipedia um, is one of the most visited websites on the planet. It, it employs not that many people. Yeah, right. it's always um, asking for money as well. So. Oh, right. yeah. uh, but they can't hire the number of engineers that Google can. Mm. Uh, nowhere close. Uh, and same for Facebook. But, but we should keep in mind, this is going to uh, affect you know, websites a lot of people don't think about, like Etsy and Dropbox. And, Isn't it kind um, of any site that has comments is potentially in scope? Well, uh, in scope yeah. is any, any website that has a search engine, right. which is pretty much everything. Pretty much yeah. um, and, and also uh, websites that allow for user-to-user um, -user interaction, right. which is, again, yeah. a lot of them. Uh, so, yeah, Yelp. I mean, you think of like a restaurant review site is, is easily in scope here. Um, and, and, yeah, tens of thousands of businesses are within scope of the bill. So it's not just a big tech bill. Um, yeah. I know you do want to move on, but I will briefly just mention something that I think um, uh, needs to be said, which is that despite the changes um, announced this week, I, I still think that the bill poses a significant threat to privacy, um, and specifically uh, a, a threat to end-to-end -end encryption. Uh, many people listening, and, and we here actually you know, use WhatsApp or Signal and iMessage all the time, uh, which are encrypted by, by default. And uh, the, the bill, unfortunately, I think, has been read by, by a lot of people as a, as a threat to, to that. And, and, and that, 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 I think, should worry everyone listening, because that means the bill is a threat to the privacy and security of millions of law-abiding British citizens. Uh, because once you break encryption, um, it's not just the British government that might be interested in the contents there. It means uh, that our communications are um, left open to criminals as well as foreign adversaries. Uh, and that um, that's very worrying. And I know the I, one of the, the member of WhatsApp's leadership team did say that um, you know, they're keeping a close eye on the bill and I, I wouldn't be surprised if they change their product or um, yeah. do something more dramatic if the bill passes as written. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Yeah, it's all, all terribly worrying. And we obviously hope that they, they have a rethink on fairly large sections of the bill. So anyway, on to our, our final topic of the, the week, which on the surface just seems kind of one of these silly kind of wokeness gone mad type stories. Um, I mean, Alice, I'll let you lead off on this. It's about the Wellcome Trust, which is based in central London. It has a bunch of objects curated by its founder, Sir Henry Wellcome, and they kind of, they've shuttered one of their, very suddenly shuttered one of their own exhibitions so, I mean, what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, I'm one of the few people who's actually been to this museum. Um, so I feel very passionate about it. It's um, uh, it, it was a uh, museum dedicated to this guy, Henry Wellcome. He was a uh, Victorian philanthropist. He made a bunch of money in pharmaceuticals. Um, his company is now part of GlaxoSmithKline. Um, and he donated all of this money to charity. And, and his foundation still today does a lot of work in medical research. Um, but instead of celebrating this great philanthropist and the, you know, the good that his money is still doing today, um, people at his foundation have decided that his habit of collecting medical curiosities, you know, things like in this museum, there was Napoleon's toothbrush. There were things like anatomical models, Isn't false Jeremy eyes. Bentham's skin or something. A bit of or... Jeremy Bentham's skin. Yeah. Um, a, a, a very eclectic bunch of, of scientific memorabilia was, was so racist and ableist and offensive that, that they had to close the gallery entirely so nobody could see it. And I think that's a very odd decision for an organisation that's supposed to be about scientific research and the pursuit of knowledge to do. It's, it's incredibly patronising to just decide that people are too stupid to, to see this stuff for themselves. And I think what I found most baffling about the sort of statement that they put out on Twitter was, was that they said the very fact that these objects have ended up in one place was problematic. I mean, that's an assault on the concept of a museum. And, it's, <laughs> yeah. I, I, and I, think it's, I, think, I think it's just very depressing to see these cultural institutions feel the need to apologise for themselves all the time. I think we're seeing a growing suspicion of culture. I think people fear it because it makes them feel stupid and they can't cope with the nuance. They can't cope with the fact that history is never black and white. It's always contested. So it's much easier just to say that this is racist than to to confront the idea that 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 there was good and bad that or and and I just think it's a really dismal reflection of the state of our culture at the moment. Yeah, it's a very kind of inane debate, as I've said a few times. I mean, we love a kind of very manic, and black, white, good, bad, um, in, and often white in this context, meaning bad because old and imperialist and colonialist and all these other kind of buzz. Um, phrases. But I mean, Matthew, I think that there is a debate about some items that have been, you know, forcibly taken from certain places and other countries might have a claim on them. But even then, it's very kind of, it's quite a muddled sort of debate, because often it will be a modern state that's claiming something on behalf of 
a previous civilization, perhaps with even with different borders to the to the current one. Or well, wouldn't have even existed at the time that the artifact was uh, collected. Uh, and I think that it, it's a question of verbs, right? Was it collected? Was it sold? Was it stolen? And for for me, looking at this kind of controversy, I think if if something was was stolen and there's a party that is upset about that, then they should be free to, to make a complaint about it. But the assumption seems to be built in that museums, by their definition, are full of stuff that was, was plundered um, by, you know, vicious uh vicious you know treasure hunters around and um i just think history reveals it's, it's a bit more complicated than that and that oftentimes um the 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 provenance of of, of items that we see in museums um to this point is it, is complicated and and so i i do think this kind of knee-jerk assume the worst or on the side of elimination is not right because it strikes me that even if you were worried about where all this stuff came from, why is removing it the best approach to it? Like, wouldn't, I mean, if you can debate again, what, but why not just put up a one poster in the museum or something being like, hey, you know, we, we're, we're re-examining where this stuff comes from or something. Like that, that would be, I think a lot of people would rather rise at that. But that, you know, that, that there is a spectrum of ways to approach this beyond get rid of all of this and just say nothing about it. And that's what I think is um, a little strange. Um, although though I... I I, I must confess, I'd never heard of uh, this this um, exhibit until the news, which might have been half yeah. of the point. Well, that <laughs> brings me well, exactly. That brings me. I think this was something that was raised uh, when you went on Politics Live, Alice. That it might be sort of a bit of a publicity stunt on behalf of the trust or something. But it's a very strange one because it's almost entirely negative coverage. Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually quite heartening that the reaction seems from both left and right to have been outraged. I think it's also the manner in which they did it. They they kind of overnight shut it down. So anyone who wanted to have a last chance to see it was denied that. Though I would say to listeners, if you do want to see items from Henry Wellcome's collection, the Science Museum has three galleries full of this stuff and seems to feel no compunction about it. So I recommend that you go there if you want to judge this for yourself. Um, I, but I suppose, I, I think the reason why why this is worth talking about, even if it's a balmy decision by one museum, is that there does seem to be this broader trend of a kind of suspicion about material culture, of wanting things to tell one story. And I think, if anything, you know, this is why objects are such a good way of looking at history, because they do have... Um, so many different meanings and contexts and, and, and objects themselves have a, have a biography. Um, so uh, one of the other things that happened this week was uh, the Horniman Museum, also my local museum, big museum fan here, um, has returned some of its Benin bronzes. And I think, I think that but these specific articles, there might be a, a, a fair enough argument that they were looted. This was only like sort of the, the turn of the century that, that British soldiers took all of this stuff. Um, and I think perhaps the, there is more of an argument there, but it's an argument that's interesting to have in the context of specific objects. I think this is, I think that they're a good example of, of a way of talking about our history. Um, though you can disagree with the decision to return them. I, I'm, I'm not no, sure. No, I, I think, I think you've, you've raised an interesting question about what, what's a museum for? Mm. Uh, because I think most people go to a museum to learn about what's inside the museum. And I worry that those operating these museums or curate them um, 
seem to have adopted a bit of a patronizing attitude that the people visiting their museums aren't capable of understanding history or, or nuance or complications because mm. then you would say, look, our, our goal is to provide you with as much information about this object as we can and present it to you. And you can do with that whatever you want. You can get upset about it. You can celebrate it. You can do whatever. But it, it seems like rather than do that, their, their approach is, you, you can't see this. Also, the sort of taking of offense here is it strikes me is so contingent and selective because it's a bit like what you were saying before about the internet being context not content so people will purport to be very offended about the manner in which certain items were collected without actually talking about what perhaps the items depict so you can go into a museum and see lots of i don't know ancient greek stuff of people murdering each other and lots of weapons that were used to kill people and you know um just all sorts of grotesqueries but no one ever puts any kind of trigger warnings or anything on this or complains about them because they're not actually bothered about people being scared or offended or anything it's just a kind of um a sop for a, a for an agenda they've already had well i think that it's just it's easier to talk about the british empire being racist than it is to talk about uh, about what a museum is for or about what objects mean um or about indeed the the content of those objects as you were saying and i think it's very odd that it seems to be people who work in museums and cultural institutions that are so innately suspicious of uh, of culture itself that I think it's very sinister um, and very odd. But it, it is itself a function of kind of modern, uh, the modern version of tribalism, isn't it? Where you just like, our side believes these things axiomatically that X, Y and Z are bad. Um, and in this, in the UK especially, that colonialism is kind of the the original sin of this country and we must, it must be expiated at every turn. I think that's sort of what underpins a lot of this kind of, so-called activism. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a story that I think a lot of people um, attach themselves to, which is, uh, you know, British soldiers went around the world and they walked into countries that weren't theirs and they took things and took them, took them back. Um, and as I said before, though, I think in, in a lot of instances, a bit more complicated than that. I mean, I would, look, if, 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 if we were invaded by a foreign country and a soldier bust into my flat in South London and stole my wedding ring and like things that belong to me and my wife, I, I would not blame my great grandchildren for say for going to the country that invaded us and say, well, that's my family, you stole that. Um, the problem is like, to your point, we're talking oftentimes about artifacts that, that there is no such receipt, there is no provenance there. Um, and also um, the civilizations no longer exist. Um, and you have governments or, or individuals claiming ownership based purely on you know gps locations which is like well this used to be you know mm, yeah, uh, yeah. back you know a few hundred years ago or a thousand years ago this was part of a certain empire or a certain uh you know take your pick um now it's, it might just be a different country but because you know it's the same land we we own it i think um that's an assumption that should be challenged, um, I think. It's just not obvious to me that that's how it should work. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's a clear difference between, say, the restitution of uh, items looted by the Nazis, where, as you're saying, there are grandchildren out there who say, that was mine, you took that from my grandparent and you murdered them. And, say, the Benin bronzes. I feel quite... Um, I feel torn about these particular objects, but but uh, but as you're saying that the Empire Benin no longer exists, it doesn't does it make sense to give them back to a completely different country? Um, but but these that's why this is these things are interesting to talk about. Yeah. Um, but simply hiding them away and closing museums and uh, that's why that's exactly the wrong approach. And uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if a museum is about anything, it's about. Uh 
creating a discussion well, and a I, debate. And it's, it's an inherently discursive thing. People from different backgrounds go in, see, see things in different ways. And exactly. And, and I think Henry Wellcome himself is, is a, a, a brilliant way to think about colonialism because he was, as I say, this great philanthropist. People are still benefiting from his charity today. Um, and yet he also was involved in collecting objects from around the world. To me, it don't, doesn't seem that bad, but the Wellcome Collection clearly think that the very practice of collecting things somehow fueled colonialism. But I, I don't see how that, that's necessarily worse than his incredible charitable giving. Mm. Um, you know, I'd say history is always contested. Exactly. We've got, to, we've got to weigh things up. Anyway, I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week on the CapEx podcast. Alice, thank you as ever. Matthew, thank you very much indeed for making your CapEx podcast debut. I'm sure tech-related stuff is not going to go anywhere particularly soon, so I'm sure we'll have you back at some point soon. Thank you very much. And thank you all at home, as ever, for listening. And do tune in next week for the next episode of the podcast. If you like the podcast, please do leave us a review because it really helps. And, you know, share it with your friends. And if you don't like it, just don't say anything. (laughs) Cheers. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.